0: Welcome to the third season of the For Jesus podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wilcoxon, and one of the lay elders here at Redemption Church Gateway. This season, we're going to talk about work, careers, taking our faith into the marketplace, and some practical advice. This episode, we're going to talk uh, about evangelical church pastors. In a recent Pew Forum survey, evangelical Protestants make up 25% of the Christian category that makes up 70% of the Americans polled. The United States has more than 1,500 megachurches, according to the Hartford Institute of Religious Research, which defines them as very active Protestant congregations with an average of 2,000 or more weekend attendees. Today, we're going to talk to two pastors that you might know. Today, we're going to talk to Luke Seth or Luke Simmons and Seth Trout. Thank you both for your time today. Yeah, it's great to be here. It is great to be
1: here. Thanks for having us.
0: You're very, uh, very welcome. Let's, Luke... I think I think most people know you, but maybe a little bit of background. Yeah, married, kids. What you yeah. do for
2: fun? Yeah, I've been married to Molly for uh, coming up on twenty years. We've got four kids. We've got a high schooler, middle schooler, elementary schooler, preschooler. Three girls, one boy. A lot of fun, and for fun, I spend a lot of time with you. You're one of my best friends, and uh, we go see movies. Uh, Molly and I love sports and hiking and kind of anything active, playing, watching. Um, I also have to say I I really like EA Sports games on PlayStation. So uh, those are some things I do for fun. And, And, yeah, any good story, good movies, good shows,
0: yeah. And which EA Sport? Uh, right
2: now I'm in, I'm on a basketball kick. I'm, I'm, in, I'm pretty deep into a season uh, playing with the Suns, but it kind of goes in waves. You know, football season will start soon. I'll probably do that. Maybe some hockey. We'll see. And do you But play- all like the first person shooter games, like I don't own any of those. Yeah. I don't,
0: I've never played that. And do you play online with other people or do you just play against the computer?
2: Usually the computer. Sometimes my kids, uh, occasionally my nephew in oh. Ohio. So we'll play together online. Nice. Yeah.
1: Seth? Uh, Yeah, I'm married to Taylor. We have one kid. His name is Jay. He's about a year and a half. He's a little firecracker. Uh, Taylor and I both like CrossFitting. We're part of a local gym called CrossFit Preferred. We were at East Valley CrossFit for like a long time, long time. We switched this gym a little closer, made some great friends there. Uh, That's basically what we do for fun. Uh, Hobbies include mostly nothing. (laughs) I guess bourbon and fitness would be my two hobbies.
0: So were you and Taylor into CrossFit before you got married and while you were dating, or is this something that became part of your married life?
1: Yeah, I joined CrossFit in, so I my most, like the furthest athletic competition I did was sand volleyball. Me and my buddy Steven would go to California and play in tournaments, playing tournaments locally. Wow. And then when that kind of was wrapping up because I realized that I was 5'9", uh, a little later than I should have, and the ceiling was just what it was. You play in Arizona and you're competitive. You go to real tournaments and you just get crashed. And then I started having these kind of like neck, back, spine problems. I have a congenital birth defect from my shoulders are different heights. And I had a chiropractor tell me that I needed to do like weight bearing bilateral exercises. Otherwise I'd have chronic spine and neck problems. And I said, What does that mean? <laughs> bilateral weight bearing. It means like barbell lifts, basically like deadlifts, power cleans, things like that. And he said I should go to a CrossFit gym. There's this place called East Valley CrossFit, a guy named August Schmidt teaches really good technique there. So that's how I started CrossFitting was to avoid uh, medical bills and met a lot of good friends, a lot of people in there. There's a lot of just similar personality type people who go to CrossFit that I kind of vibe with, kind of, especially like when you go to the 5.30 a.m. classes, the 7 a.m. classes, there's a lot of type A people and it's fun to get to connect with them, especially when you work at a church and you're just have this real potential of getting swept up into a super Christian bubble. It was a great way to stay connected to um, folks who had different worldviews than me. And so I got connected there. And then when we got engaged, uh, Taylor was still living in Tucson and she was looking for a way to get uh, honeymoon ready. She signed up for CrossFit.
0: Nice. So how long have you guys been preaching?
2: Uh, my first sermon was my senior year in high school at the uh, last night of young life club, they kind of turned it over to the seniors and I couldn't play guitar or sing or, and I wasn't willing to like drink a like cup full of, you know, toothpaste and Oreos that people blended up out. goldfish. Yeah. Yes. Not they didn't blend up goldfish. They blended like fish fish. They blended up goldfish. So they're like, Arden. Hey, why don't you talk? So <laughs> that was the first time I did a, a talk. Um, and then in college uh, I played, uh, baseball at Illinois and had a chance through that to kind of go places and give my testimony and speak at youth groups and do some different stuff like that. And that actually kind of got me interested in preaching. Actually my senior year of college, I had a Christian professor and um, he, I asked him, could I do an independent study with you about preaching where I would read some books about preaching and interview some preachers. And it would culminate in me having to kind of give a talk at like my athletes in action group. And he said, yeah, that'd be fine. So that kind of got me into it, but really, and then I, um, started volunteering in ministry in 2002, um, got hired on as a, as an intern and then a pastor in 2004. And even in that environment, it was usually preaching in smaller groups, communicating in smaller groups, not a lot of preaching, preaching here and there. First time I ever preached weekly was when we planted this church. So before that, I would preach maybe once or twice a month in a busy month, sometimes go months without preaching at all, almost never preached an entire series. And so, um, yeah, so I guess really preaching would be like the last 12 and a half years of this church. Oh, Seth? Yeah,
1: pretty similar. I started, my first sermon was at an FCA that my buddy John and I were leading. John had a real heart for ministry. Um, I just had a heart for being in charge of stuff. <laughs> and so he, he got wrote me into leading our FCA fellowship of Christian athletes in high school. And we uh, were plo- throw these events, dodgeball things, share testimony, preach. And that was the first time I preached. So senior in high school. And then I got hired by the church. Like I graduated in May, 2009. And in June, 2009, I got hired by the church to be the worship leader for college high school, things like that. And I did that as my main job. And it wasn't until I would gig out as a worship leader for summer camps and I heard so many really bad sermons all the time. And I thought, like the economist in me was like, supply demand. You know, if this, these people are getting hired to preach, they must be real desperate for preachers. And I talked to my mentor pastor at the time and was like, man, uh, am I really arrogant to think I could do better than this? Than a lot of these people are getting hired. And, <laughs> and the guy was like, well, you can read and understand stuff and communicate in a way. And I just felt like really burdened about like the Bible is interesting. This message is is the most important thing. It's really applicable to people's lives. And somehow these people are somehow making this boring and irrelevant and just feeling angry about that. So I was mostly, Mm. I mostly started preaching for reactive reasons, thinking it was partly that my dad, remember my dad sitting in church being like, man, if I had 40 hours, I could do better than that. And, and, uh, feeling similarly. And so that's when I switched. I asked my, the guy who's overseeing me at the church, like, Hey, could I start getting reps preaching? And so then I preached a lot in high school ministry and college ministries. and, at my previous church, I probably preached maybe a sermon every six weeks regularly. And I've been kind of slowly doing more over time since being here at Gateway.
0: So preaching feels like you you bring uh, a couple of different talents and skill sets to be able to deliver a sermon. One, studying the word, understanding the word properly, you know, handling the word. Then there's constructing a sermon, then just the the talent of getting in front of a congregation and trying to connect with them, try to, you know, let those spirit work, but also just be able to use communication style and delivering that would make it engaging. Like so when you think about all and, and maybe I'm missing something, when you think about kind of all the different facets that go into delivering a thirty-five minute message on Sunday. Like what are areas you feel like you just naturally bring to the table and what are the areas where you're like, oh, okay, this was something I need to, I'm continuing to work on or one I kind of really chasing after. Yeah, I think that the reading
1: people and reading the text is like the two biggest parts of that. So like there's this, uh, a joke I saw the other day that talked about was making fun of seminary grads. I was like, man, all that Greek and Hebrew still can't read the room. And the whole idea of you can read the Bible, but can you read people? And I feel like I have a pretty natural insight into people, their internal process. I feel like I had that before I really grasped theology, like understanding how people function, what makes them tick and what makes them work. I think a lot of that came from my dad. He's pretty wise, intuitive of understanding what's really going on, like the internal process of the world. And then academically, I studied philosophy and psychology and went and got a couple of degrees from seminaries. And so the theology piece of that is there. The part that I find that I struggle with is trying to make, to be, a person that is representative of me when I'm preaching. Like, I think that a lot of times, like if you spend time with me in a room, you'd be surprised at like the um, non-anality compared to if you only heard me preach. And so that's something that Luke's been encouraging me to do is trying to like be myself while preaching. And I think I'm getting better at that over time, trying to just be my full self. I think for a long time, even in my previous church context, it wasn't like a good idea to be myself because... I would have, I had to like suppress myself in order to keep getting opportunities. I had to kind of become kind of a take yourself seriously theology Bible thumper. And I think being here, especially being under Luke and this eldership and leadership, I think I'm over time becoming more myself in the pulpit. And when I hear people tell me you're getting better, that's mostly what I think they're saying is you're becoming more of yourself in the pulpit. And so being a person who's present to people and can connect with them ordinarily, I think that's a big place that I've been growing in. And probably the hardest part for me is not kind of defaulting into my academic mode that is just instructive and not really relatable.
2: Mm. I often ask preachers, do you, do you prefer the preparation or the delivery or both? Ooh, great question. And um, I find a lot of the pastors I know it's one or the other for me, it's both. I really love both. I think Seth probably really loves both. Yeah. I probably prefer the delivery, but I have more insecurity on the preparation
1: of like, will I have something to say that's yes. valuable to people?
2: Yeah. I mean, for some people, the, the study is just a grind and then it's like, okay, finally that's over and I know what I'm going to say and now I can just have fun saying it. I, I enjoy all of that process. For me, the natural part would be um, to some degree, the communication. I did theater as a kid, you know, being up in front of people is not scary to me. That's not challenging to me. I've had to definitely improve at the skill of communicating and dynamic and, timing and all of that sort of stuff. I don't, I was not good at that. When I started preaching, it was very uninteresting to listen to, but in terms of just the, like, Oh, I'll get up and talk. I I've, that's a pretty natural thing. And then I think I'm a pretty clear thinker. And, um, even as I listen to things, I'm able to go like, okay, I'm tracking with this or, okay, you lost me. Um, and so I think that ability to kind of try to organize in a way that you know is fairly easy to follow. Not everybody prefers that. Some people likes like things that are a bit less linear. Um but at least for people that like a more kind of linear approach of of preaching or learning mm. or communication, I think they resonate more with my preaching cuz that's more naturally how I think. So
0: when you guys are visiting other churches, is it hard to turn off the analytical side to when you hear another preacher preaching live cuz I know We all listen to probably a lot of sermons through podcasts or through audio, but when you're live in person, seeing another pastor, are you able to kind of turn off the analytical side and really just try to take it in? Or do you always find your mind going back and forth or you, have you been able to get to a point where like, okay, I'm just going to turn off the analytical side of his style or the message?
1: I find I have a harder time turning on the analytical side. Mm. I don't really listen to any sermons or podcasts about preaching or things like that. I'll, I'll listen to podcasts about just random stuff, but not really preaching per se. Uh, Luke's probably more like the preaching guru. I feel like there are times when I'm listening. And I like the sound of that. Yeah, the I'm not sure it's true, but uh, <laughs> there's your side. Is list. that URL available, Jeffrey? Yeah, Digital marketing? Right Preachingguru.com?
0: Uh, we will have to look that up. All right. yeah, go, Daddy. I,
1: I feel like if because of my role or because of Luke's preaching and I'm trying to listen to sermon and give him some helpful feedback, I have to remind myself, like, listen analytically, because otherwise... I think I went, especially like in my early 20s, I went through a season where I was just so compelled with anal- analyzing. I had a hard time finding my own voice and trying to be myself. And I feel like I'm still in the season of trying to react against just being analytical of others so I can try to own my own voice rather than kind of do a compare and contrast thing. And so if I don't on purpose try to be analytical, I tend to just kind of participate as a as a listener more so than otherwise. I don't know if Luke's the same way or Yeah,
2: not. for me, I mean, I... I- I've done enough like coaching of preaching and giving feedback and um, I can't really turn it off. Um, What I try to do is turn on the other part, you know, of, you know, when we go on vacation and other places like, okay, I'm not here to give feedback to this preacher. He's not asking for it. It's not my job or responsibility to give it. Um, I just want to listen and be, you know, someone told me a long time ago that uh, mature people are easily edified. And I try to be an easily edified listener mm. to go, I'm not here to pick it apart. I could, but I'm not here to do that. It is interesting though, with, with really well-known preachers, I tend to not do that as much. I, you know, you just kind of get swept up in the moment or there are certain things where you go like, oh wow, that was a really good, that was an effective kind of move. Um, but also over time I've kind of, uh, figured out which kinds of things I might emulate and try and learn from in that way and which things you just kind of admire and go, Oh, that's cool. Not for me. Um, and I, figuring I, out my own voice in that process.
1: Similar to that. I feel like I tend to pay attention to, I, I switch into analytics mode if it's bombing and I'm like, why is this not working? <laughs> sure. I'm like, why is this not working? This is not landing or I'm, this is not driving with me or the people around me and I can feel it not working. I have to go, why is this not working? And that's something I have a hard time turning off. Yeah. If people are generally good, I just feel it's easier for me to just kind of be there.
0: Mm. So preaching is one part of your role. The other part of your role is, is leading the church staff, leadership development. Tell us a little bit more about what maybe some may not see on a Sunday or just in the proximity to both of you. Like what are, what are you doing outside of the preparation
2: for a sermon kind of through your week? Yeah. It's funny. I mean, anytime someone, people sometimes kid me and go, Oh, it must be nice to only work one day a week, you know, and Molly wants to punch those people (laughs) when they say stuff like that. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I get why people would think that that's fine. Um, yeah. I mean, really like preaching is a significant part and it's the most visible part, but, um, for both of us, even when we preach sermons, I bet most, I bet most weeks, Seth and I just knowing how we both work probably would average somewhere in about, the realm of like seven to at a high end, maybe like 12 hours of study or preparation, um, which would be both the study and the writing and the crafting and all that, which really, as far as pastors go, I think is kind of medium to low end. Like I know some pastors that will, they'll spend 20 to 30 hours a week preparing their sermon. And at that point I start to feel like, well, do you have time to do anything else? Um, and what I found is, you know, the difference between a 10-hour prep sermon and a 20-hour prep sermon, is not it's not 100% better. It's like 5% better. Mm. And early on, you know, as a, when I was a church planner, and as a church planner, you're kind of the one-man decathlete doing everything, I realized and got some advice It said, you know, all that extra time studying would not be nearly as good as spending time meeting with people, talking with them, understanding what's going on in their lives. Seth talked earlier about the importance of reading people. And, um, you know, one of the things that we believe as we preach is we're not just preaching to the void. We're preaching to people. It's part of what made preaching in COVID a little bit more challenging is you had to really kind of imagine the people and kind of speak into a camera. Um, but really, you know, doing the work of trying to know people and really, I mean, the, the scripture describes pastors as shepherds and good shepherds smell like sheep. And so it's trying to spend time with people, um, as our church has grown and, you know, more organization has kind of emerged. Um, there's a a lot more work of kind of coaching leaders and training people and developing staff and, um, doing that sort of a stuff. Um, for me, a lot of it is, um, I try to spend time meeting new people. Um, you know, inevitably I think when people are in moments of crisis, they tend to get on the radar of pastors. Um, so that, there's, a, there's a fair bit of that. And then for me personally, um, in the recent months, I've moved into about where a couple of days a week for me is working with all of Redemption. So um, that's time uh, talking with other lead pastors, helping plan different initiatives that we're doing, um, You know, really kind of being kind of a coach and a mentor to other pastors and helping us figure out kind of as a whole organization and movement, what are we doing? So.
1: Yeah,
2: the way that I describe people short-term,
1: or in like short terms is um, I'm like 25% preaching, 25% counseling, 50% nonprofit business management (laughs) is the way it kind of ends up functioning. Sure. Like, so even just like this week, ordinarily I have, I try to get a lunch with someone in the church four days a week as a way, just kind of connecting with new people and, or like owners in the church who are leading stuff. And so I do a lot of lunches and a lot of that's just getting to know people and hearing their stories and how they end up at the church then I have a role in overseeing counseling here um, with Vicki and Mark, but I still like participate in the intake process and and see probably four people a week who are or four people or four couples per week. And then um, I have a lot of direct reports and so a lot of one-on-one coaching, counseling of staff members. It's how that ends up functioning. My, my kind of work week is a little different. I tend to wake up at like 4.30 and do sermon prep and email until about 6.30 and then I go to the gym at 7. And then I'm here for about six or seven hours midday. Mm. So I kind of break it up like that because I find that having that quiet time by myself when everyone else is asleep is the easiest time for me to do some deep work and think and write and do that kind of content work.
2: It's interesting actually that, that kind of dual dynamic of being a public speaker and being a leader is partly some of the appeal of the kind of video multi-site church. You know, that's not what we do, but a lot of times you know what people say is there aren't a lot of leaders who are very good public speakers and great, content creators and very good kind of carers of people and counselors and leaders and stuff like that. And so a lot of times those things make it where, you know, you could be a campus pastor somewhere and not have to bear the responsibility of preaching. You know, it's a little bit different when we, when we do both, but, but that's partly what I like about the kind of sharing the pulpit to some degree where I'm not up there every week and it makes it where on the weeks where we're not preaching, you know, there is more time to kind of connect with more people and do more things like that.
0: So you, you both have lots of reps preaching every Sunday. When was the last time you got nervous about a particular topic that you are going to be preaching on that Sunday? And what topic was it? Oh,
1: man. Uh, the ne- last time I was pretty nervous, I was in a sermon, I actually didn't even preach. It was on gender and trans issues. I was allowed to preach that March 15th, 2020. And <laughs> uh, I was mostly because I. it's like a cultural hot topic issue and I have like 30 hours of stuff to say about it and I had 40 minutes to try to say stuff about it on mm. a Sunday and so some of it's like when there's like complicated topics that are really affect the well-being of lots of people and you like topical sermons end up being the hardest because there's a lot to say when I'm preaching a text it's a lot easier because like here's what the text says and here's what applies to, there's it feels like less risky whereas that was a big and then I ended up preaching in an empty room instead of doing my, there are basically two gender sermon or there are two gender sermon. I taught faith in a pandemic, which I was anxious about, not because of the content of the sermon, but because of what was happening in the world. And so it's, it's been a long time. I don't really lose sleep or get nervous about sermons. Like even when I was nervous about that one, it wasn't too bad, mostly because I feel supported and I've last time I bombed was like probably two and a half years ago where I preached a really long, really boring sermon. People might disagree with me about that, but like even like the times when I've bombed, I felt like loved and supported. So I don't feel like I'm trying to prove anything when I preach. I'm trying to love the people. And when that, when I'm in that frame of mind, I feel like, Hey, I'm trying to help you all. And sometimes you hit a single and sometimes you hit a home run
2: and sometimes you get struck out and it's like, well, you sure. get your pitches. Yeah, I think for me, the two that come to mind, one would be Easter. Um, we were outside, and mostly it was mostly about just how different the environment was. You know, I'm out in the sun. There's lots of kids there. Um, there's lots of people that don't really know me and don't really know our church. And so you're kind of trying to um, keep people engaged quickly. You can kind of see with the heat. It was a super hot day, so you kind of see the distraction level you can kind of, especially the second service, I remember kind of partway through going like, I need to wrap this up. Like I'm kind of losing them because it was just so hot and all that. So three people had already died by then, <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, that was more just a function of how different it was. Um, you know, the last kind of more normal time, I think I felt nervous was probably, uh, earlier this year, I did a message called still better together where I cast some vision around uh, being part of redemption church. And I think because of some of the challenges we faced in redemption over the last year and some people really wondering how does redemption structured and how does it work and why really are we doing this whole multi-congregational thing? I felt just a lot of pressure to get that right. Mm. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges when you preach is you want to try to preach, not just to be understood, but to not be misunderstood. Yeah. Uh And especially in a message like that, I I felt the pressure to get that right.
0: Mm. So there's an assumption, especially if you've been listening to this podcast uh, about taking your faith into the marketplace, whether you're a pilot or a doctor or in marketing. So there'd be an assumption that, well, of course they're pastors, they're bringing their faith into their work. So let's explore that a little bit. So what, what are areas where you definitely feel that you need to lean on the Lord prayer like what are situations that you encounter through your day your week your month where I need to rely on the Lord I need his strength to get through this
1: I think the most obvious one to me is in counseling situations Uh, people come in who are either terribly suffering or terribly sinning most of the time both Uh, that's not totally fair most of the time terribly suffering sometimes terribly sinning and usually if they're terribly sinning they're also terribly suffering and people are walking in and to be present with them and to be helpful to them and to be caring to them and sometimes corrective and curious in all the right ways. Uh, especially if it's like you just got out of a meeting where you're like talking about logistics, about a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and you're planning the fall calendar and you're administrating budgets and then you have to shift gears real quick. And all of a sudden there's someone whose 19 year old passed away four months ago and you have to like sit with them and, Mm listen. And so that gear changing from like nonprofit business management to sitting with people who are deep in suffering is pretty hard. And I feel like that's like a spate area of weakness that I feel like I have to really pray myself into meetings a lot of the times to try to be like the right presence in the right environment. Cause the presence that's needed counseling someone who's grieving their 19 year old is categorically different than the presence that's needed when you're trying to make some decisions about what we're going to do in October. Mm. And I think That's kind of the, uh, that's one of the places where I feel like I regularly am needing to depend on the Lord and both in terms of wisdom, discernment, and in terms of helping me be the presence that's going to be most loving to the need of the situation.
2: Yeah. I think the, I think the interesting thing that comes to mind with that question is that, um, people would probably assume that because the work, it seems more obviously spiritual, that it would just naturally thrust you into dependence, um, and I think there's maybe times like that, right? You're meeting with that, that couple, you just, were just talking about, right? Like if you were meeting with a couple like that, you would go, Oh Lord, I don't know what to say help, you know, but so much of our work is like so much of everyone else's work. You know, you're making decisions, you're having conversations, you're thinking about strategy, you're asking questions, you're assessing, you know, situations. And it's just as easy to not depend on the Lord in that, uh, as it would be doing anything else. And I actually think one of the challenges as you get better at any job, you actually become competent, right? It's the times when you feel really out of your league that you go, Lord, help. I don't know what to do. Um, and so I think one of the temptations is to, you know, not be very dependent on the Lord. Um, and so I feel like in the same way that if I was doing some other job, if I was doing digital marketing, I feel like I'd have to go, Lord, help me with this. And really cultivate a heart of dependence and a heart of prayer um, because it doesn't necessarily come any more natural, I think, being in ministry than not being in ministry. Mm.
0: What has God uh, kind of shown you or, or helped you grow like over this past year? And it doesn't have to be related to, pan, to the pandemic, but just in terms of your own life as leading a church, but also pursuing God, pursuing a vibrant relationship and love for him that is connected, but yet is more personal in your own life.
1: I think a big one for me was it's easy to feel like you are secure and competent when things are going really well. And it's hard for me to discern, am I feeling secure because of my identity being rooted in grace and in what Christ has done for me, Or or am I secure because my circumstances are benefiting me and making me look good? And especially leading into the pandemic, I was feeling pretty secure in my work, feeling competent at, feeling competent at work, feel like I'm good at my job. I'm doing well in my job and then pandemic hit. And all of a sudden you go from feeling like I'm like an A at my job to feeling like I'm a F, maybe a D depending on the moment. And I have to like relearn all my, all my soft skills are still there, but all of the hard skills on what it takes to like implement, organize, administrate is like start from scratch, and the insecurity that comes from that and realizing how much of my personal security and identity was not actually in uh, the affection that the father has for me and the grace that Christ has shown me and made possible through his death it was actually in me just feeling good at stuff. And so that being stripped away for a little bit in particular, because of the, the structural changes that were necessary because of the pandemic created a bit of me realizing that I'm way more tossed to and fro than I want to admit. And I'm way, uh, I'm way less, um, healthily differentiated than I thought I was. And I'm way more dependent on earthly resume sty- style um, success than I want to admit. And so just realizing how much of my identity was actually an achieved identity, not a received identity. And that something that really got exposed this past year. And even just trying to, I'm a pretty disciplined kind of relatively high control person. And when all of a sudden being disciplined and high responsibility didn't really matter when controls taken from me and placed in the hands of some virus. I mean, not actually, but in the hands of something else, that was just really hard for me to mm-hmm. feel like I'm being dictated to, um, by authorities besides myself. Like I, uh, one of my kind of internal fears is like that fear of being controlled. And I felt very controlled a lot of, uh, last year. And some of that was for my good. And some of that was not for my good. And, even like there's probably more tension between Luke and I than I ever had because like he would make choices cause he had to cause he's leading stuff and I'd feel controlled by them. And, and, uh, between the government and myself. And so there's so many places where I was just feeling like these people are in my box and I want them out of my box. And so my own just general well being was way more t- caught up in circumstances than I want to admit.
2: Yeah. I think for me, I mean, one of the interesting things is, in being a pastor is there is a sense in which it is a job but i'm not doing it as a job i'm doing it as a calling as a vocation and some people listening get to do that with their jobs and some people don't um but i do feel like that and so in that sense um i really you know got into this consciously thinking lord i work for you the interesting thing is you're also trying to serve and shepherd people right sometimes pastors will foolishly i think say well, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. It's like, well, that's what this job is. You're a shepherd, this is sheep. Like you can't do that. And yet, when push comes to shove, there's times where you can't you can't make the people happy and the Lord happy. Mm. And you got to serve the Lord. And I think in this past year there were times where that was tested and where it was like, okay, what am I am I going to do? What what the sheep want? Am I going to do what the people in this church want or am I going to do what I think God wants? so often because it's such a blessing to pastor this church, what the people want and what the Lord wants seem to be the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is, but, but there were more moments of divergence this year. And I think in a way, I mean, one of the things I learned was that, um, I still really am driven by wanting to love the Lord. And, um, I don't like disappointing people, but that's sometimes what has to happen. So, um, I think that was a good lesson.
0: Mm. Um, There's lots of examples of of pastors, um, moral failures, burning out. Um, I think, Luke, I mean, I think you're uh, being able to have a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. What is that? Eight, eight, nine Uh, years ago? That was in 2015. Yeah. Okay. Wow. COVID time goes fast. Um, (laughs) And I think we've kind of set a precedent a bit in trying to look at the mental health of our pastors. Mm -hmm. There's all, I don't know if, if, if it was you or someone else, you know, Christ died for the church so you don't have to. Yeah. So I think there's this culture of of how do we um, look after our own and make sure that they're healthy so they can do ministry well, but also to take the time they need to also be healthy. Um, what what are some changes that you see the church needs to make, whether it's our church, our church universally, to pastor the pastors or to care for them or to make sure that they are they have that time so that they don't, Burnout or have a moral failure because they're just at the end of the rope.
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting even going back. So, um, before I planted the church, we, um, you know, I listened to Gobbs hours and hours and hours of different talks and trainings and things like that. And, um, the only ones that I made Molly listen to were the burnout stories Oh wow. and there were a lot of them, which oh. itself is interesting. Mm. You know, a lot of pastors went, man, I went too hard and then I kind of burned out and then now I'm back and here's what I learned. And it was really going like, how do we not have this? Like, we don't have to have this story. Like, there's a lot of we burned out and then we rebuild. It's like, how about we just don't burn out? Like, but what? But it's a, it's a great way to sell books, is to burn out and then sell books about how to not do it. <laughs> True. So you know, there was a sense of like, hey, we gotta. We don't have to follow that script. We don't have to follow that story. But but if we just go with the flow, we probably will. So how do we be conscious about that? And I think that's really kind of where it starts. I mean, honestly, I think um, I think there's lots of opportunities for um, pastors to be cared for, to be to have the time they need off. To and a lot of pastors, honestly, it just it, it's not going well in their own heart. There's an overdriven, overworking um, that comes from places of insecurity, and it comes from fear, and it comes from obligation, and it comes from guilt, and it comes from a lot of different things. Um, you know, where it's like, you know, it's no amount of vacation is going to make it where you can overcome just constantly bad overworking habits, you know? So I think it starts there. That's something that even in my role with redemption, I'm trying to kind of pass on because even what I've seen is like, we have a culture of a lot of emotional health and rest and in a gateway that I'm trying to help spread elsewhere. Um, you know, a lot of it is just, uh, it's so easy to just take yourself too seriously and think that you matter so much. And one of my mentors told me once, he said, you know, you're just the flowers. I was like, what? You're just, and he said, you know what? He said, my daughter just got married and we booked a photographer and we booked a venue and we booked a caterer. And there was this, there was this flower person that they really, she really wanted. And that person said, Oh, well, I'm, I'm not available then. I'm already booked. And she said, but we really, really want you. And the flower person said, well, I'm already booked. I'm sorry. I can't do it. And so she got another flower person. <laughs> and I feel like that's a lot of how life is. like And people sometimes will come and go, I need you. You're the only one who can help. You're the only one with the answers. You're the only. And that feels pretty good to be needed that way. But the reality is like we're a whole church. This isn't a one-man show. And so I think I think – You know, one of the things pastors have to do is just be willing to go. I'm not the answer. I'm not a savior. I'm, I can point you to the savior. I can help you get with some other people. I listened once, uh, to this podcast where this guy was saying, you know, my son's a pastor and, uh, every year on vacation, he takes two cars on vacation just in case there's an emergency at the church and he has to get called back. And sure enough, every year, guess what happens? he gets called back. And I was listening. I'm like, well, that guy's an idiot. (laughs) Like the reason he gets called back is because he's willing to get called back. And so anyway, so that's, I think a lot of it's in the pastors. Um, When I, when
1: I was a a single person in a pastor, I lived in this house that had a bunch of guys in it and I was sleeping. And at 2am, some guy came in my bedroom and woke me up. Said, there's a pastoral emergency. I need you to help me. So what happened? And the guy said, "Um, I just had sex with a prostitute. And I need you to talk me through what I just did. And I said, well, will you have had sex with her tomorrow still? And he said, yes. I said, well, then go to sleep. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. in that I've, like you said, I feel like there has to be this ability to say your crisis is not my crisis. And also I don't think this is a crisis. And I think one of the things we're privileged to have as a church, this our size is a team.
2: Yeah, we're, for sure.
1: And there are a lot of like solo pastors who would have a much harder time saying, I'm not coming back because they're by themselves. And so creation of teams, elder teams, pastoral teams matters a ton and real trust and the ability to say, um, if Luke's really gone, then Luke's really gone. And so it takes like a, a, there's a team effort that we're all going to decide to respect vacation time. We're all going to decide to respect nights and weekends or other times like that. And, and I think that that matters a ton, but that internal piece of like, I want to save you and it feels so good to be needed is what has to die in the heart of pastors and elders, if they're going to be able to do that. And the other thing too, just, just financially, when I first came here realizing that like part of the church budget that's available to a lot of the people on staff is that our, our church helps finance coaching, counseling and therapy if it's needed. And so even just the fact that like, we're going to try to remove financial obstacles to pastors being emotionally healthy, like the, that there's literally a buy-in to that, um, that, that, speaks to culture and creates culture in a meaningful way.
0: Mm. Um, what kind of idolatry does path to do pastors typically wrestle
2: with? I can tell you the kind of idolatry I wrestle with and I don't know, maybe <laughs> other pastors do too. Um, I wrestle with um, wanting to seem impressive and um, and wanting to be perceived a certain way, wanting to kind of come off as competent, come off as I oh, really thought that through. Um, so a lot of kind of fear of man, approval of people. Um, I don't need to be liked. I just have to be liked. What's <laughs> Michael Scott? <laughs> I liked, like, I love to be liked. <laughs> um, so I think that would, I think that would be it. Um, I think another, I mean, another way that I discern idolatry is through what makes you angry. And, um, I think, uh, poor attention to detail makes me angry, kind of unnecessarily so sometimes. And so sometimes that's kind of control. Um, and, and it's related because if I see a word misspelled on something that feels to me like that's going to make me look incompetent, even if I didn't have anything to do with it. And so the kind of control stuff uh, gets in there a bit. Um, you know, it's interesting over time too. I, uh, you know, the church has been really generous to me and, um, you know, I make more money than I used to. And, um, I think there's just a line we were singing it the other night. Uh, there was a night of worship and we were singing, um, be thou my vision. And there's a part that says riches I heed not nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Um, And I just thought, yeah, Lord, I don't, I don't want to do this for money. I don't want to do this for praise of people. I want you to be my vision. I want you to be my inheritance. And uh, I wish that came automatic, but I, I have to wrestle through it.
0: Yeah. Seth,
1: I think similarly the uh, there's, so it's similar, but it's different. I would say, especially as a younger pastor, there's something like a bug in me that wants to be seen as different than pastors. Like when people find out I'm a pastor and they go like, Oh, like I like that way too much because I like them. <laughs> I like them being caught off guard. Like if someone's like, what are you a pastor? I'm like, Oh crap. I gave <laughs> like, I'm showing too much religion. Like there's like, uh, especially like in college, I kind of started like, I want to be different than other Christians. Like I don't like trying to like a distinctness or a uniqueness. Uh, that would define itself in rather than like seeing like I'm a part of the body of Christ, like wanting to be like a unique part of the body of Christ in in a way that differentiates myself from other Christians. Like it makes me think like though, thank you Lord I'm not like other men, but it's thank you Lord I'm not like other Christians and pastors. And so that kind of haughtiness of I'm not like those people you heard about on the news or I'm not like your neighbor that is whatever politically. So that kind of unhealthy, and, and that's, like, part of my, like, fear of being controlled is I don't want to be controlled by a script or a narrative. And so instead I just do a different script or narrative. And, mm-hmm. and so that that kind of, I don't want to be typed in that piece. And the other one is you said, like, I want to be respected or what you say? You said uh, seen as competent or seen as I feel like there's, for me, it's more like if I follow, like, my anger and the places where I get... It's more like I want to be revered, which is probably just a nastier version of what you said. <laughs> like this, uh, I want people to respect me and do what I say. And so, like, my internal world is a lot nastier. And so, like, I feel like I'm constantly having to pray through. Whenever someone's, like, resisting my leadership or my direction or my counsel, I find my blood pressure go up and I have to really kind of pray through. Like, you're not God. You're not God. You're not God. You're not God. And And so that when people are impressed with me so that they do what I say. So it's more control based on uh, status than it is, I don't really want them to care. I don't really care what they think about me as long as they do what I say. And I tend to
2: kind of discern that through. Mm. When I think one of the unique aspects of church leadership is except for, you know, except for really a staff, you know, people who might formerly work for the church, you're leading an entirely volunteer thing. So people don't have to be there. I mean, I guess you could argue, and unfortunately, some pastors wield this that you have a kind of spiritual power over people. Um, And to the degree that that's weaponized, obviously, it's incredibly damaging. But I think that's one of the interesting things is like everyone who's here is here because they want to be, or at least they want to be more than they want to be something else, I guess. (laughs) And so um, there is, I I think that is partly what makes uh, church leadership really challenging. It's also what makes it kind of fun and it it, creates some interesting temptations. It
1: it makes it like more personal. Like I remember hearing uh, some manager wrote a book and in, in it, they talked about how people don't quit organizations. They quit managers or the people don't quit organizations. They quit leaders. And so it's tempting as a pastor not to take, because you're leading a volunteer, predominantly volunteer organization. We have like 40 staff and we have X number of thousand people who come. And, the person like taking it personal when people decide to opt out or go to a different church or even uh, do that and trying not to make it about you like the narcissist the little baby narcissist in all of us that's like everything's about me and everything's somehow an indictment on me and something somehow testimony to me is is part of that and I think that comes back to just the insecurity that's um, latent that's not really found that if we were more rooted in Christ we wouldn't be tempted to take those things personally but taking those things personally because sometimes they are personal that doesn't mean we need to take them personally
0: yeah mm. so most people listening will Sabbath on a Sunday you both work on Sunday when do you Sabbath and do you Sabbath well
2: um, so I have learned to Sabbath well um, and really the Sabbath for me is essentially Saturday um, and I bet Probably of 52 weeks a year, I'll bet probably 48 of them really are truly a Sabbath. Mm. Um, there's other times where something comes up or there's a wedding or a funeral or a crisis or, you know, something like that. Um, so that's kind of what that looks like for me is Saturday really is a is a turn it all off day. Um, but yeah, it wasn't that way. I, I remember in 2013 I had, um, you know, we were at that point, like four years into the, the church plant, I told you what I, Molly and I had worked on about going, like, hey, we don't, and I was getting to a point of, like, going, man, I'm feeling pretty fried. And through that process of that, which is actually kind of what led me to eventually, a couple years later, plan for a sabbatical. But through the process, one of the things I realized is I needed to do this, I needed to really honor the Sabbath, mm-hmm. um, that no amount of sabbatical could make up for bad habits weekly. Um, and so that's how that has looked for me. Fridays have kind of evolved. I mean, I kind of work Sunday through Thursday. There's times where I'll do some stuff on Friday. You know, when I was going through seminary, I did a lot on Friday. Um, right now I'm kind of spending that time with Molly and Hank uh, while the other kids are at school, but it just kind of depends. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I heard a quote this morning that talked about, um, destructive time on will not be solved by time off. Yeah. And that resonated, uh, I Sabbath on Saturdays. And I've always been pretty good at it. And I think it comes from my dad or my mom saying, your dad's ability to do nothing astounds me. <laughs> and so I don't know if that's genetic or probably not genetic, but it's passed on, which is funny because my dad's not the Jewish one. You'd hope the Jewish one would be good at Shabbat keeping. But my my dad's like the good rester. And I think part of that is even when you grow up living under someone who works a teacher's calendar, there's kind of more naturally built in rhythms to that, that kind of get it in your bones. We do like, um, especially my, my wife is um, like a, a high productivity person. And so we, we started our Saturday mornings with the spiritual discipline of not making our bed. And it's <laughs> trying to like,
0: <laughs> which
1: I tell that some people and they're like, you make your bed and then we we make our bed six days a week. Mm-hmm. But part of it is like starting the day with something unfinished to try to set the tone for today's not going to be about finishing things. It's going to be about Mm. uh, resting has been helpful to us.
2: It's made it an interesting rhythm for our family though, too. Cause like, like for Molly, you know, like where I think if I was not a pastor, Saturday would be a lot of kind of chores and clean up and the big weekly cleanings and things like that. She'll and our kids and our family, will do all that on Sunday also. Um, so that Saturday can really be kind of a Sabbath for the whole family, not just for me. Wow. Um, but it definitely makes, I mean, it, it creates different, uh, you know, challenges. It makes Sunday not quite as restful for our family, but that's okay. We're willing to pay that price.
0: Yeah. So imagine somebody 23, 25, they finish college or, um, you know, maybe they're on their first kind of career or, or second job. Um, and could you both lead staffs and help develop people? Like, what, what would be kind of the advice you'd give them to be a faithful employee?
1: Faith employee. One of my favorite books is by a guy named Jocko Willink. Tyler books, extreme ownership, and I think that especially young men like there's a, one of my favorite verses is from uh, Lamentations three twenty seven. It's good for the young man to bear the yoke in his youth, and just that reality that uh, the yoke straightens you out. And so the both the combination of extreme ownership and that verse makes me think just to adopt and a highly responsible orientation to the world around you. Meaning a lot of people sit around asking the question, whose responsibility is that? And I can't wait till more stuff is delegated to me. And if you can find a way to take initiative and a, and take responsibility for things around you, especially take responsibility for the things, for the people who are above you in the organization and start to serve them by taking things off their plate that they don't like or they don't want to do, that's extremely helpful. One of the advices my dad gave me at my previous church was just take initiative till they fire you and because they, they probably won't. And they're going to be blessed by that. And so um, kind of sitting around waiting for permission is not a great uh, way to, one, become a leader or to, two. But if you see the opportunity, see the little hanging fruit, take responsibility and act in a way that's congruent with the values of the organization, you're going to be given more and given opportunities and you're serving your superiors in love in a way that they're going to appreciate. And in that way, one of the things that Christ did for us is he took responsibility for stuff that wasn't his responsibility. If you kind of are the, that's not in my job description person, you're going to have a hard time embodying the, the way of Christ to adopt responsibility for things that are not his problem.
2: Yeah. The first thing that came to mind was do the stuff that the people above you don't like doing. Um, so Seth said that though, uh, I think what I'd say is, you know, your twenties, I think really are about figuring out what are you actually really good at and what is worth becoming an expert in. And you don't find that right away and you don't know that when you come out of college and or when you come out of high school or whatever it is. And so I would say like mostly like try stuff, say yes to stuff, explore lots of different opportunities. Um, I think the twenties is where you go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bounce into enough things to figure out, okay, here's the area I really want to focus. Then your thirties to me is about like putting in your 10,000 hours, getting really great at it so that your forties and fifties actually become like your kind of maximum fruitfulness sort of opportunity. But I think it starts with just kind of grinding you know, saying yes, um, not being too good for stuff.
1: One of the problematic trends I've seen is there's books written by people in their 50s about work-life balance and rest and (laughs) not being overworked. And then (laughs) 23-year-olds read those books and then don't work hard. And I think that you kind of have to, most of your 20s at least, needs to be about learning about your limits and how hard you can work and finding out what those are because you can't just read someone else's book and discover your limits. You have to discover them for yourself. And if you're like most concerned with like only getting seven and a half hours of sleep, like you're not going to do that. And so the thing I tell young guys in particular is work harder than everybody else around you because most people around you are in their thirties, forties, and fifties and have a lot more responsibility and other things are dealing than you are.
0: Hmm. So some, uh, some writers and, uh, people who kind of like to think and uh, talk about work they talk about the hard skills and the soft skills mm. so hard skills is like maybe your competency if you're an engineer getting your degree and that experience of of fulfilling your roles and responsibilities but then there's the soft skills empathy communication um, being a team player um what what would you what advice would you give in terms of of kind of where you should lean and what what may actually kind of um, that you probably should focus in on like in your twenties.
2: Yeah. It's, it, you know, when you ask that, it makes me think of, um, it makes me think of Patrick Lencioni has a book called the ideal team player where he talks about, you know, the ideal person is a combination of humble, hungry and smart, which really he means is kind of high EQ, high emotional intelligence. And, um, and I think, so, I mean, that comes to mind. So it's like, you got to be a rock star at the hard skills to get away with being a doofus on the soft skills. And and there's, most people are not that talented at anything. Um, and especially if you're a Christian, I feel like having emotional intelligence and uh, you know, having the ability to communicate and care and listen and all that just becomes super important just for your faith. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'd say like, you gotta, you got, you need both, you know? Um, I mean, there's kind of a like, if you're not at a certain level of soft skills, it doesn't matter how good your hard skills are. Um, I think one of the best ways to discern it is, is to have really um, like painfully difficult conversations with people that are a bit ahead of you that you respect really asking, Hey, what is it like to experience me? Mm. You know what, what comes in the room when I come in the room? You know, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are the things I don't see? Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you can get someone who you trust, who's respectable, to be honest about that, I think it just accelerates your growth real fast in terms of the soft skills and what am I like to work with. And, um, you know, it's funny. Even just calling it soft skills makes it sound like, yeah, I don't, want, I don't care about that. I want to be soft. But it's like you don't get you don't get far in life if you can't work with people. So a lot of those soft skills for Christians are matters of faithfulness. Like
1: there are things we ought to pursue as disciples period, whether it plays out and is advantageous to us in the marketplace or not like curiosity, humility, um, the ability to connect and read people to weep with those who weep to um, rejoice with those who rejoice. Like the, the emotional intelligence piece has everything to do with becoming a loving person like Christ. And so, they are advantageous in the workplace universally, but I think it's that's more about faithfulness, whereas a lot of the hard skills are a matter of effectiveness or option. And so I would generally say that everyone needs to be running after soft skills all the time and kind of be trying on different hard skills. Like I led worship for a long time at church, and I discovered my ceiling. Like I had to work very hard to be barely adequate, whereas the, remember the first time I taught, I had to work a lot less hard to be better than I ever was. Like after my third time preaching, I was better than my 500th time leading worship. And so I just like sold my guitars and was like, I'm done with those hard skills. And I, and I <laughs> went the other direction and now my guitars are, um, I turned them into tattoos cause that's what I did with the money. So, <laughs> I, so I feel like there's a level of experimentation with hard skills that there's some of the pay to play stuff. And there's also, you got to kind of, it's what your twenties are for. Kind of like what Luke said is I spent, six years thinking I was going to be a worship leader as my main gig. And then I was like, got to preach once. And I was like, done with that soft stuff, done with that hard skill, but all of like the trying to know people. And it was actually something a one of the pastors at redemption. Gilbert told me one time before I worked at redemption, I said, like, I'm trying to be this worship leader. And, but my mentors at the church just keep talking to me about like how to become a pastor and how to know people and how to love people. And I'm not really getting better at worship leading. And he said, we'll be grateful for that because One of those applies universally and one of those applies very narrowly. So they're probably actually helping you Mm. by focusing in on those soft skills rather than the hard ones.
2: And I just feel like as I look around and I look at people in, you know, a variety of different careers, the most successful people are the people who are most successful at the soft skills, Mm. you know, and you can make, uh, not that it's all about making money, but I see some pretty average people in terms of their skill set have a really great career because they're really great with people.
1: Because when you have a soft skill set that's really good, you stay in the game. Yeah. People do not want to fire you. People do not want to have some other department snatch you away because so much of even just workplace culture is like there's some of your most connected friendships. And people want you at the table and because they like you. And when you're at the table, you get reps. And when you get reps, you develop hard skills. It's remember like we used to play bump out the game or speed when you play basketball. And my dad would always say, like, this is one of those games where the principle that the rich get richer, prove it. Cause if you stay in the game, you keep playing the game. And when you get out, you stop getting better. And so I think part of the soft skills are what keeps you in the game and not getting swapped around from game to game.
0: Nice. All right. It's time for our fun, rapid fire questions. Um, So if you had a magic wand or praise the Lord and he was going to answer for you, (laughs) what would you fix about your role
2: as a pastor? Um, I would have more time and space to truly know everybody in our church. Mm. It's rapid fire, Seth. I took a long time too. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) But it was a deep question. It is a deep question.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I really enjoy sitting with people who apply for counseling. And hearing their stories and their pain. And I feel like the limits of time, I mean, like I feel like a have to choose between leading, managing and counseling. And I wish I didn't have to make that choice. Like I wish I could do all those things
0: all the time. Yeah. Um, so if, uh, God blessed you with 10 million dollars and you could pick kind of a fun side career, what would you do?
2: Um, Oh man, a fun side career. I think it, I mean, it seems like these people that do podcasts don't make any money, so that could be a fun side career. I'd probably pr-
1: start a comprehensive health facility that would be a, a combination of therapy and physical therapy through sports intervention. So, it'd be like a combination of therapy office and CrossFit gym and people would work on their holistic health in one place.
2: Mm. That's a much better idea. I'd be a movie reviewer with you, Jeffrey. We just go to movies all day long.
0: That'd be awesome. So there you
2: go. Pretty lame.
0: Next question. Who is your go-to pastor? Like you um, need to be spiritually fed or you just want to get excited about because of the the way they preach, their content, their style. Like did they just got the whole thing? Like they check all the boxes for you. Who who do you go to? Tim Keller.
1: I only listen to Luke.
0: Oh,
2: Oh. come on. Save it.
1: (laughs) I don't listen to other people's stuff. But if if I need a pastor or if like I want to listen to a sermon.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's a good good distinction. Yeah, I I mean, I can't call Tim Keller and go, hey, you know, here's this thing. Can you pray for me?
1: If I'm feeling like I need a pastor, I go to Luke's office. If I'm feeling like I want to hear a dope sermon, I'll probably listen to Matt Chandler, which I haven't done in a long time, but
2: I like his preaching.
0: What's the one book that you want to preach that you haven't had a chance to?
2: Mm. Revelation
0: why? Uh,
2: I took a class on it last summer. Uh, one of my seminary professors when everyone was doing a bunch of stuff on zoom was like, Hey, I've been reading some stuff on revelation. I want to teach a class on it. And, um, I think that, uh, most people read it horribly wrong in a way that's massively confusing. So I think it'd be fun to provide a better, I think more faithful way to read it and kind of model that. Um, I think it's incredibly relevant. I mean, so much of the book of Revelation is not about the details of the future. It's about the battle between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Babylon and the idolatry of the nations versus, you know, faithfulness to Jesus. And so I think it'd be fun to kind of highlight that clash. And I think it'd be pretty relevant in that sense of like, we see that battle going on around us actually, if we have eyes to see it. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a bunch of people that wouldn't think I would ever want to teach it. And so that's kind oh, of fun. Nice job Hmm. why job was probably the first book
1: written and it provides a ton of the background to the ancient near eastern imagination and answers the question just why do the righteous suffer and by answers the question I mean it doesn't answer the question but almost makes you think it's going to so it, it embraces the full sovereignty and mystery and power of God and it really puts man in their place in a way that I appreciate
0: would you rather be more creative or analytical
2: more creative
1: than I am More in general in general creative
2: is yeah, that I, I was saying creative because of I, I think I'm pretty analytical so you want you know? to balance yourself out yeah it's like you know um I think there are preachers who see a situation and go "Ooh, and this is how I am I can three lessons from this experience and I think there are preachers who go that reminds me of a story <laughs> and I just I wish I was more of the that reminds me of a story yeah. Just because I, I kind of do the other thing pretty well.
0: Are, and, and you said analytical, correct? I said creative. Creative. Is that because you want uh, you more naturally analytical or you're creative and you want to be more creative?
1: I just find myself appreciating creativity in other people way mm-hmm. more than analytical ability in other people. And I it's just more captivating. And i like to be like the, the creatives really help people see, whereas analytical people help people understand and I think seeing is more important than understanding.
0: Mm. So last question, uh, what is the number one quality or value that anyone can bring to work? Any kind of work. What's the, we've talked about um, work ethic, soft skills, hard skills, but like what is the one quality you sit down with a young man or woman and they're asking about work and they're like, what's the one thing I can bring to my, my work, my job?
2: Uh, first thing came to mind for me is curiosity. I just think being curious opens so many doors of relationship. It opens doors of skills. It opens doors of possibility, problem solving. I mean, I just think uh, people who already know everything are not that interesting. Yeah. I thought empathy,
1: the ability to get between someone else's ears and behind their eyes and to experience and sense what they're experiencing and sensing. I think whether you're selling, building, preaching, counseling, like the ability to really inhabit someone else's shoes and to feel it would make people way more effective and loving at the same time.
0: Mm. Well, thank you both. Um, this has been great. Uh, hopefully I didn't a- ask you a bunch of the typical questions. I was trying to give you a few curveballs, but yeah, this was fun. Virtually
1: yeah. none of the typical questions. That nice. Great.
0: Well, <laughs> and Luke, and uh, thank you so much for your faithfulness to Christ and to our church. Um, To those listening, we love you so much. We hope this has really given you some some things to think about and hopefully just to to know Luke and Seth a little bit more. But um, thank you. And in Jesus' name, we said amen. Amen.